talking about two of the lost episodes of Quiet Please from from late May and early June of 1948. We're going to be talking about the stories below Fifth Avenue and 100,000 Diameters, which are lost, but also apparently actually exist somewhere. We'll we'll get into that in a moment. Um, But we have nothing to cut to, no episodes to cut to this time. So what we're going to do instead is we're going to play a short clip from Paul Neerum, who, um, as as you all know, you, you should all know by now, but if you don't, Paul, Paul is the guy who runs quietplease.org, who's kind of the, the unofficial um, Quiet Please historian, you know, um, just uh, mo- basically the most, probably the most knowledgeable man in the world about Quiet Please, arguably. But we're going we're gonna, to uh, spend the next few minutes listening to Paul talk about uh, not, not just these two episodes, but uh, the state of, of the lost episodes in general and, and why we have the scripts for all of them, et cetera. But uh, I'll let, we'll, we'll, we'll put it over to Paul and be back with you in a moment. 20 years ago, back in July of 2002, I started up the project of transcribing Quiet Please episodes into scripts. It was Dark Rosaline that gave me the idea. Such a beautifully written episode that I really wanted to see what it looked like in text, too. This turned out to be a much more laborious project than I could have imagined, especially because so many words are hard to make out, or they're obscure words I had no idea how to spell. This was all happening on the quietplease.org forum, so I was trying to get other forum posters to pitch in and help to complete the episodes. It'd be a lot more manageable if we had five people each doing sections of a script instead of one person slogging through the whole thing. Soon we had a few regulars pitching in on that. But then, things really changed in the middle of 2003, when a user named Astro1 came along. He told us he not only had scans of some scripts, but he actually had them for all of the missing episodes, which the audio had been lost for. I don't think he said where he got them. I can't find it in my search of the forum. But I did find a thread where somebody named WCME came along later, in 2007, to let us know that the University of Maryland College Park had two boxes, labeled Quiet Please, the Willis Cooper Collections. Among many other things, he found that these boxes contained original broadcast scripts of every Quiet Please episode, full of notations and handwritten editions, also audition scripts for some of them, which differ slightly. This collection was donated to the university by Emily Cooper of Boulder, Colorado. I should also note that the audio of the Venetian blind man was found at the Indiana University Archive of Traditional Music, and they, in turn, listed it as possibly donated by Northwestern University circa 1963. So there may be a lot of universities with different pieces. Anyway, these scripts weren't digitized, but Astro One set about the hard work of typing them in for us. He focused on the missing episodes, and it took him about six months to get those all typed up for us and posted to the forum. 
I should also mention there was another forum user, MS, who did a lot of work transcribing the non-missing episodes and digging up and sharing all sorts of interesting newspaper clips about Cooper and Chapel. MS also mentions he's sent away for some copies of scripts, so I gather he was getting photocopies from university archives. Below Fifth Avenue was one of those scripts that doesn't read particularly well, but becomes a delight when you start recording it. It's probably the most fun I've ever had recreating an episode, because it has such a good flow and a playful quality, and such interesting exaggerated characters. This is one where it doesn't take a genius to figure out where Willis Cooper got his idea. Perhaps the road work made him late to work at the studio when he decided to write up his excuse as the next week's script. It makes for an interesting illustration of how the idea for a script can come from such simple, everyday things. Not just conversations overheard at the bar, but something as simple as seeing a manhole on the way to work and inventing a fanciful explanation for it. We don't think of Willis Cooper as a funny guy, because most of his work was horror, but he really had a knack for these occasional light-hearted stories. Thanks to episodes like Below Fifth Avenue, you can listen to Quiet Please even when you're in the mood for something light and relaxing that won't give you nightmares. A Hundred Thousand Diameters, on the other hand, is pure nightmare fuel. It feels like Lights Out meets the thing on the formal board. It has that stark late-night horror quality of Cooper's early lights-out classics. The monster, much like in Forble, is a sort of a void which he leaves to our imaginations to fill in. It's worth noting that the script for 100,000 Diameters does not actually indicate any sort of sound effect for the virus. It seems Cooper wanted you to hear nothing and leave it entirely up to you. When recreating it, I felt that just wasn't quite working for me and I liked it better with a sound effect for the monster oozing along the floor towards you. So where you hear the monster softly in my version, remember Willis Cooper didn't actually mean you'd hear anything at all. And we're back. So Matt, we're here to talk about Below Fifth Avenue and 100,000 Diameters. Kind of an interesting pair of lost episodes. They originally aired back to back and probably couldn't be more different in tone and style. Uh, one is uh, is pretty absurdist and comedic, and the other is uh, sort of maybe one of the most frightening, conceptual, conceptually frightening episodes of the series, I would argue. And that's just reading the script, so not even listening to like the original broadcast. Um, but yeah, uh, where do you want to start with this? We could talk about the fact that these episodes are um, basically lost, but also, uh, as Paul mentioned, Apparently, they're still out there at the Museum of TV and Radio in New York City, uh, but they are uh, inaccessible for, for reasons that are very, very uh, frustrating and very, um, you know, I, I get very angry thinking about the fact that the, we could have these episodes, but they're, you know, kept under lock and key and uh, kept from the, uh, the eager masses of, of dozens of diehard Quiet Fleece fans out there. So I, I don't know. Is that a good place to start, or do you just want to? Just yeah, talking about the stories themselves. No, let's let's start there since we can sort of riff off sure, Paul. Sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I totally agree. You know, um, and, you know, it's it's complicated, obviously, and I'm not. Uh, I'm more of an as far as like academic research goes, I'm more of a theory person than an archive person. So I know there's stuff like with the Paley Center, which is where they're at, but it is just really frustrating. Like it's just all sitting there. Like in the abstract, you have some. There should be some commitment to the whole point of an archive 
is that uh, at least the whole point of a non-state archive, right? You, know, you have a state archive where you go hide all the you know official documents or whatever. But theoretically, an archive, like in the spirit of, I don't know, this is going to sound corny, but like the Library of Alexandria, right? We're supposed to put, you know, the collection of human achievement here and have it. And, and, and that one burnt down and we lost it all. And it's like, well, we should not do that again, right? We should, we should have it out there. Um, yeah, it sucks. It sucks, especially knowing that there's that vibe of some of the other episodes um, and not in not just Quiet Please, but other radio programs, famed lost episodes that people, you know, wish we sort of we've riffed on this before of like the lure of just imagining what it must have been like. Um, and the outsized sort of imagination then man, can imagine how scary it must have been or something like that. But it's totally a yeah, it's a completely different vibe knowing that it's sitting out there and that we could listen to it, but we can't. <laughs> yeah, it's like the um, I, I don't know why I always forget the name of it, but what's the episode you're really fond of that takes place in Montana? Oh, yeah. An another um, another great the, lost episode that seems to be mile high and a mile deep. There you go. A mile high and a mile deep. That one in 100,000 diameters just seem like, you know, th th I mean, just based on the strength of the scripts, they, they could be as strong as like a northern lights or. Maybe mm -hmm. that thing on the formal board, but I don't know. May, maybe, you know, I mean, they're just, they're just, I mean, first, there are episodes that really could only work on radio. I mean, I think of right. seeing, you know, this story play out in you know, like a TV episode or, or in like a B movie in the 50s, it would just be very corny and very, uh, very forgettable, frankly. But there's something about the magic of radio that I think just makes this kind of story just work, you know, in the theater of the mind. And I know we say it time and time again, but that, that's just what's so special about this series is that Cooper was able to give us so many stories like that, that, that just really blossom in this medium. Yeah. And I would say, you know, maybe to get into the episodes themselves, those, that sort of vein that you were just uh, uh, specifying there is that's my favorite quiet place when he like gets into this, not quite Lovecraftian, but this kind of like really deep cosmic sort of scientific horror of something so unthinkable and beyond um, our sphere of existence, like kind of erupting into our world of conscious mastery, right? Something that exceeds our mastery that sort of breaks into it in a certain right. way, whether it's something deep buried underneath the ground in, in Montana, <clears throat> Northern Lights, another dimension, or here in 100,000 diameters, this kind of, you know, you know, to, to not uh, the elephant in the room, uh, uh, the emergence of a pandemic, but one that like, one that isn't just a virus, but one that like is, 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 is figured through our ways of knowing, right? What if we, what if by accessing a, a, uh, an entire universe that, that is so much smaller than what our just pure biological eyes can perceive? What if by, by sort of breaking through that pure natural limitation we somehow open some door into a world of horror that we didn't know like that, that we were somehow immune from before we went around and sort of fucked with the natural right. order of things or something like yeah, that. yeah right? i love that in show. that sense it's pretty lovecraft adjacent but i mean the 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 the, the common thread through cooper's work on quiet please is sort of this you know sort of science gone awry trope yeah which you know we see in in weird fiction it's, it's done in many different ways, but Cooper seems to have kind of his own style that he comes back to, um, sort of the science gone awry. You know, I think about an episode like this, or I think of obviously Northern Lights, or, or a later episode that we'll get to sometime down the line called Is This Murder, which is kind of a sort of like an updated Frankenstein sort of story about this man being, you know, brought back and 
yeah. brought back to like this living hell of existing again. And I, I, I yeah, anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to it. But I, I find that to be one of the, uh, one of the actually like more frightening episodes of, of the entire run of, of Quiet Please. But maybe I should uh, focus my thoughts a little bit and talk specifically about these two. And I don't know if we, you know, we can talk about them, you know, in order, or we can just kind of talk about them as like this odd pairing. Because uh, as Paul mentioned in his, uh, in that clip he sent us, you know, this is kind of one of the, below Fifth Avenue is one of the more sort of uh, outlandish, silly comedic episodes. And, you know, I, I would maybe slightly disagree with Paul in that I think Cooper actually did the comedy thing a lot more often than people realize or acknowledge. You know, I, I made a short list of all the, all the episodes leading up to these that I would sort of, to varying degrees, put in like the quiet please comedy category. So I'll just, I'll just rattle them off here if you don't mind, Matt. We've got Bring Me to Life, Don't Tell Me About Halloween, Kill Me Again, Little Fellow to a Certain Degree, and Pathetic Fallacy. And I, I, I don't know, maybe also a little bit of a, I Always Marry Juliet. You know, these are not like purely comedy episodes, but I think they they certainly have like these dark dark comic moments uh, that sort of the break up the tension of the story. And some of them I would argue are just pure comedy. You know, pathetic fallacy being one, um, kill me again, maybe being maybe being a better example of just like a purely uh, comedic or dark darkly comic uh, quiet please episode. So, you know, I, I put below Fifth Avenue is you know alongside those others, and I I was thinking about this one reading the script a couple times the last few days and um you know i like to mention my favorite sci-fi writers from time to time some of the mid-century guys that sort of came came into their own like right after quiet please was was being broadcast and there's there's a guy i really really like who i've been into for most of my life at this point who's uh kind of from your neck of the woods matt are you familiar with robert sheckley no he wrote a lot of he was a portland guy uh he wrote a lot of really interesting funny he was basically he's kind of credited as, as being like the first guy to successfully um kind of bridge the gap between comedy and science fiction he had like a very absurdist strain of, of of humor and so he wrote all these amazing short stories and novels in the 50s and 60s and 70s that were uh you know sometimes they were a little bit more serious and more dramatic but there was always kind of this undercurrent of just like absurdist humor to his work and he's sort of um not to digress too much, but he's he's sort of credited as like inspiring Douglas Adams to do that um, oh, very successfully okay, okay, with, yeah. with the Hitchhikers books. Um, there was one novel of his in particular called Dimension of Miracles that uh, his whole life, Douglas Adams basically said like, this is the book that really inspired me to get uh, the Hitchhikers books off the ground. Although, although I guess those were a radio drama first actually on BBC, but um, right around the time that the Hitchhikers radio dramas were, were being broadcast, he started writing the books. And he's, he always pointed to, uh, to Robert Sheckley and said, you know, basically, you know, I'm standing on the shoulder of a, of a literary giant with, uh, with the work that Robert Sheckley did. And so I, I sort of, I, anyway, where I'm going with this is I sort of see that, I sort of see Willis Cooper's attempts to do that with dark fantasy and comedy is almost like sort of a predecessor to Robert mm -hmm. Sheckley. I, I have no idea whether Robert Sheckley was ever aware of Quiet Please or whether he was influenced by it or not, but I sort of, uh, I sort of see it as part of a timeline, you know, we always try to chart these things as part of a, you know, sort of pop culture timeline with, you know, Willis Cooper and Art Schobler being the radio guys and then some of the, you know, the literary guys like Frederick Pohl and others sort of coming along in the 50s and 60s and doing it in a different medium. And uh, yeah, I, I know you've said in the past that you're not as much a fan of the comedic episodes of, of Quiet Please, but I'm a huge fan of them. So this is, this is great that we had two back-to-back -back episodes that are 
very silly and very comical and then very dark and very dramatic with, you know, 100,000 mm -hmm. diameters. So it's just, it's testament to how uh, sort of off the wall Willis Cooper was that he could just completely switch gears like that, you know, and go from, go from one mode to another, you know, only one week apart. Yeah, I mean, Below Fifth Avenue is interesting. Um, it is, you're right, like the sort of spirit of it is kind of much more uh, absurdist um, and humorous, you know, down to like, um, I'll talk about the the mechanisms of the plot in a minute, but like just down to just even just the affect in, the, in some of the lines, like yeah. the bit at the end, the, the running joke about, you know, drinking beer during Prohibition mm -hmm. and the, the, the bit at the end where uh, the... Uh, we ask for for a player bees right like like stuff like yeah, this. Yeah, it's just yeah. like classic, speech classic cooper yeah um but on the other hand what i found interesting about this in the sort of the comedic mode is that i feel like some of the other comedic episodes i don't really like are the ones that find the humor in some very kind of uncharacteristically personalized kind of narrative for Cooper where it's like some some somebody runs into trouble somewhere and it's a comedy of errors and uh you know some particular thing happens but the the sort of humor here is this seemingly like you imagine how, where he started this and he was like shuttling between a meeting where he had to I'm making this up of course uh, you know, had to get to some script meeting here and then he got in a cab and he had to go down midtown to meet this other, you know, exec person to do this thing to talk about, you know, they shifted it to 3 p.m. in the in the second season and he wanted to go complain and, and he's just going over all these manholes and he's like, this is so annoying. Can't somebody do something about this? And then imagines this whole fantasy yeah, world yeah. of like, but what it is, what's so funny about it is that it is this particularly 1940s-esque um sort of mutation of a Kafka-esque frustration with bureaucracy, yeah. right? And it is such a post-New Deal, post-1940s version where uh, he talks about the, like, the, uh, the there's some, like, a, a you see, I was elected commissioner of annoyance and inconvenience on a platform of more holes for Manhattan. But then, but then, and then the little men, right? But then on the other hand, they keep bringing up, like, the telephone company. And I find this really interesting where the humor is, like, you know, I don't think Cooper ever was a systematic political thinker insofar as he was going to present a structural critique of the way in which the manager, blah, 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 anything like that. Right. But on the other hand, I think you can really read in in this script, you can see this annoyance with, um, you know, not just the sort of general way that Americans get annoyed with bureaucracy, which becomes an anti-state thing, but like yeah. just the impossibility and the frustration of like, okay, uh, it's now we're entering the 50s and things are starting to follow a whole different set of rules than they used to in the 30s. And they're very annoying. <laughs> and I don't know, there's some humor there in this that I Definitely. really like. And, and you, you could read this from like different angles. You could read it as like, you know, like the modernist era is like at its peak. You know, there's always like, we've got high, den we've got high union density in the workforce. And you can kind of, you could, you could, if you were so inclined, read this as like, almost like, you know, a petty grievance with like oh, all these overpaid, you know, utility workers out there slacking on the job. Why can't they do something about all these holes in the ground? Yeah. This is this is insane. And you know, I was thinking the same thing. And and Paul, in his opening remarks, sort of posits the same theory that you know he he, he just imagines and listening to this one that Cooper is on his way to like a script meeting or to a you know an, an audition or something, and just keeps coming across all this maintenance work being done in New York, and just his his imagination just goes wild, and he starts imagining, oh, what if it's actually like little little men down there causing all this. Uh, causing all these detours on the road and 
I don't know. It's just in my my own my own personal uh, work at, here in Minneapolis as a bus driver. It's like we're getting into what we call construction season in Minneapolis, and it's I I, I sort of it's easy for me to think about the uh, the frustrations that might have led Cooper to write this episode on a uh, on a personal level because I have to deal with detours all the time. You know, and it's like you you sort of get in you sort of get like the muscle memory in place, and you just you you drive the route as you know it and it's like oh there's like three detours this week and I have to my whole route is messed up and I just have to I have to work around all this construction going on and it's going to be this way for five months and I don't know I, I imagine that Cooper was uh was thinking the same thing like oh can it just be static can it just be yeah. the same because I, I don't want to I don't want to change my my commute you know yeah 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 <laughs> but at the same time too you know it's also like you know, removed decades of this now after, you know, the sort of neoliberal project and everybody, you yeah. know, having a complete and total structural cultural antipathy towards any kind of state project that right. would just turn into it. You know, I think it is important that that uh, Van is is elected the commissioner of annoyance and inconvenience and not uh, the commissioner of, you know, total exploitation and, uh, you know, theft industry. You know, like the the bad thing about a, a, a bureaucratic apparatus that keeps pop, you know, making holes in the road is that it's annoying. Right. And I can live with a world of annoyance, um, which is a very, I think, a very different thing than often where this kind of a critique gets turned into American culture was like and that's why we have to get rid of all of this altogether right right and defund you know defund it altogether um so I don't know I find that kind of interesting it yeah and I think that's why it's a comedy episode and not um a more serious episode because it's like what's really what's really at stake here it's just it just pisses me off you know it's, it's, it's just it's, irritating. it's more funny the idea as you said it's the, the idea that this is just like the department of annoyance rather than like some kind of like insidious political project to make yeah you know, yeah like, yeah like you said i don't think cooper is trying is thinking about this on like a in some kind of you know stale political sense he's just thinking of it in like a, a, you know as robert sheckley did you know as like he's, he's thinking of this through the lens of like absurdist humor and just just imagining the world like the world is just like one big Marx Brothers movie. Everything is just chaos. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Like madness, but there's there's not necessarily any maliciousness behind it. It's just uh, things are disorganized, and that it's it's annoying to have to deal with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, we should note too, maybe. Uh, I guess this would be a thing to note for both of them, but mm -hmm. um, that uh, on QuietPlease.org, Paul did recreations of both of these. Yes. Um, and that uh, definitely check them out. We'll link them in the show notes. Um, but uh, this one in particular, I, I really enjoy. Um, and I, uh, other than the fact, obviously, that it's missing, well, well, that we can't access the real recording at the Paley Center. Um, but this is a very interesting script that has um, a lot of different roles and it's a lot more complicated. It feels like just on the page, it's a lot more complicated than a typical uh, script, which will be much more monologue driven. Um, much more narrated. Um, there's a there's a lot of di there's a lot of back and forth and a lot of dialogue here, and I think uh, Paul did a really good job, sort of, you know, editing this one together. Um, so definitely check them out um, on the on the website. Yeah, I'll just reiterate that. Um, we'll put it in the show notes, and everyone should give it a listen. But yeah, these are definitely very dialogue heavy episodes, which we don't think of often when we think of Willis Cooper and Quiet Please. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of something Neil said on a recent appearance on our podcast about uh, the great Neil Verma said about how Cooper was actually really great at writing dialogue. And um, was it There Are Shadows Here where he talks about how there's a lot of like, there's a lot of the actors sort of talking over one another. And like, that's like, that's like yeah. a very hard thing to pull off in, in any medium. 
Um, you know, we think of Robert Al Robert Altman doing that with uh, with film, but it's it's interesting that Cooper seemed to do that from time to time on Quiet Please too, and it seems to have worked, even though we don't we can't listen to it firsthand here. Just looking at the script, it seems like uh, that's kind of the vibe he was going for with this one. Is you know, just like there are shadows here, like there's sort of people talking over one another, finishing each other's sentences a bit. Yeah. And, um, I really wish. I'll, I, in fact, I'll just. Uh, I was going to save this to the end of the episode, but I'm. I'm. I'll, maybe I'll bury it in the middle so you know, uh, powers that be don't notice. But I, I am personally <laughs> offering a bounty to anyone who wants to go to the Paley Media Center and, and retrieve these episodes by by hook or by crook. Uh, you know, get in touch, and we will. Uh, we will conspire to make that happen. Because, and I don't know. Maybe me and Matt. Maybe me and you will someday do like a quietly yours road trip. And, uh, yeah, there you go. Of course, you'll have to go a uh, much shorter distance than me. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, I would. I would very much like to. You know, maybe maybe around the time this ep the podcast is is wrapping up, you know, maybe that'll be like the final, uh, you know, achievement if we're successful in, in in getting some of these lost episodes, you know, unearthed. We could hit a yeah. We could we could like do an archive trip. Um, Definitely. Know, see what see what we can pull out. Actually, we that probably would be possible. We could probably make it happen. Paul mentions that there is. I don't know how it ended up there, but he mentions in that clip that we listened to a few minutes ago that uh, you know after Ernest Chapel died, um, his widow. I forget her name. Was it Elizabeth? I may be wrong about that. Uh, anyway, his widow donated the transcription discs to different places, and apparently some of them ended up at a university in Indiana of all places. Not really sure how that happened, but uh, apparently some are some are here in the Midwest too. So we could always do a an archive, you know, archival trip uh, to to Indiana and see what we can uh, scrounge up there too. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I just meet halfway, right? I, I hate to think of these just languishing there because you know this is such a such a weird esoteric thing. I I, I just imagine they're just covered in cobwebs or you know in like an old wooden crate or something and just yeah, and and it's the kind of thing that otherwise because this isn't because this is such a niche thing now it would just sit there forever you right. know there, there isn't this big pull and push to to pull this stuff out you know so yeah absolutely what well, one day we will make that a priority so um a couple little things that i want to talk about um we have the second uh i, I believe this was in 100,000 diameters we have the second instance of chapel's character uh jokingly referencing a, a publication called stupefying stories which uh <laughs> i can't remember the other episode that that's come up in but i know it's come up uh, once or twice before so i wanted to draw attention to that um there's also uh you know the 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 sort of the sort of cooperism of drinking and alcoholism comes up in both these episodes in different ways and we have gin and tonics and 100,000 diameters mm -hmm. uh gin and tonics famously were in uh, uh whence came you as you recall um I talked about that with Richard Hand last year. Um, oh, and, and in here, in in, uh, in below Fifth Avenue, we have uh, you pointed out earlier the the drinking beer with uh, toward the end of that episode. Beer, um, please. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I like that um, somehow that 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 you know, drinking always seems to pop up in these stories in one way or another. So. Yeah, totally. You know, and maybe as a transition point to note the the sort of thematic shift that happens between these back-to-back -back episodes here. Um, one, th one thing that really came to mind while reading both of these scripts is, I think, really visible evidence of the difference between Cooper and Arch Obler um, as both the various architects of Lights Out, right? And I think we can see in both of these episodes 
the kind of imagination that spawned lights out but where he takes it which is on the one hand uh yeah kind of light dark fantasy um in below fifth avenue and then the other hand this kind of cosmic dread and horror of a hundred thousand um diameters um but there are obler versions of both of these trends that nevertheless turn into obler scripts specifically and the two that i'm thinking of that are sort of both of these stories kind of told in in a different way are uh in lights out sub basement the one where the guy's gonna kill his wife and takes her down into the sub basement of the mace like some department like a, store. yeah big department store and then you know changes his mind and oh i was so sorry or whatever but like a similar kind of there's a subterranean kind of thing going on underneath there um but then oxychloride x which is a classic lights out yeah. which is which is a horror of the world ending and this kind of you know pulpy mechanism of of which you come but it's it's not explicitly funny but it's absurd right the whole yeah. the whole i don't think of, i don't think it was meant to be campy but i think listening to it it's like hard it's pretty to, camp yeah but i it, yeah they're very similar in the sense that it's about like an indestructible force that just you know keeps in that case something that just keeps expanding and expanding yeah you know here with uh 100,000 diameters is kind of the sort of the same thing only it's the thing isn't getting bigger it's that it's multiplying and it's like right you're not going to be able to rein it in because you don't even know how many of them there are at a certain point it's like unstoppable thing that, that which right. yeah on the one hand you just have to read the sort of nuclear anxiety but right. then on the other hand in oxychloride x the the story mechanism is that uh it's it's some like you know pencil neck geek at, at, who's trying to get into a in a college frat and all the all the cool bros like make fun of him and they don't yeah. like him and they're like what are you doing you'll never be cool like us and he's like I'm gonna show you yeah. and then he makes the thing that you know but that feels like the kind of absurd sort of spirit in below fifth avenue right is it's like yeah what what he's really getting at here is some kind of like intersocial dynamic thing that will play out um uh, that accidentally leads to some, you know, conceptual horror. Um, and it's just, it's interesting to me to see uh, Cooper, Cooper's version of both of these sort of keeps them at, at bay, at arm's length from one another and sort of plays the logic out to its extreme. And Obler like kind of stews it all in the pot and tries to do it all in, in one single script at the yeah. same time. Yeah, that's, um, that's a good way of putting it, I think. Yeah. Uh, but maybe that could be a good transition into 100,000 diameters, which again, I wish I, ah, I want, I want this episode because um, it does. It reminds me of Northern Lights because it has the mm -hmm. sort of laboratory kind of thing. And I'm imagining the, hearing the light fully of the sort of machines in the, in the lab. And yeah. 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 Something that this might seem like too obvious of a comment, but something that struck me in, in rereading both these scripts is <clears throat> is just how how effective Cooper is at creating an atmosphere or telling a story with um, in such like a brief manner. Like you read these scripts and you realize, and I know like this has been said again and again in regards to Quiet Please in general, the scripts are like so much shorter than like any other radio play mm -hmm. that like is put into like that 30 minute format. And it's no secret that we're fans of the pacing of Quiet Please in general, but I think it's, uh, it's testament that you don't need a lot of superfluous dialogue. You know, I, I think, Cooper was just really adept at making the dialogue serve the narrative and not have to go on and on and on and like in hide exposition in the dialogue. It's just there to kind of create the atmosphere and create and create the mood. 
And I think that's done really effectively in 100,000 diameters. You know, you read the script and you get to the end, it's like, oh my God, it's, it's already over. But then you think, well, what else could he have done? You know, I mean, like yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it did everything it needed to do. Like the story was told uh, in a very concise manner and it's, it's terrifying, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, there's a, there's a point that I was maybe going to want to read um, out of the script uh, just to show kind of part of the difference here. Right. Um, if, if you go and you read the script of below fifth Avenue or, or hear Paul's recreation um, as we noted, it's, you know, very sort of dialogue heavy and situational um, which, you know, as you noted, is, is more common than I think people remember in, in Quiet, Please. Um, on the other hand, there are moments in 100,000 Diameters that are like the classic, incredibly rich and vivid, horrifying kind of narration that I would expect to see. It's very literary that I expect to see on a page. And I just wanted to read this. Um, yeah. I'm a little under the weather. Listeners can hear. So maybe it'll it'll make me actually sound uh, closer to chapel than I than I usually do as a as a tenor. Um, but but there's a point um, in the script where sort of after they sort of do this experiment and, and open it up, um, it cuts back to the narration and Judd, the sort of one of the characters, is this following uh, narration. It's a bit long, but I just want to read it because we don't have we don't have it. So uh, uh, you know, apparently says. And three frightened people searched that house from cellar to attic in those long, slow hours between midnight and dawn. And it was almost seven in the morning, broad daylight, that we found what had been Dinty, Kurt's Siamese cat. It didn't look much like a cat anymore. And alongside it, this thing, twice as large as it had seemed when we first saw it, it seemed contented. We got pails and a broom and a fire shovel. And as we lifted it up, it weighed very little, but it was stickly. As we lifted it up, it divided neatly into two parts, and the one that dropped to the floor started to move briskly away. It had fed, and it had reproduced, simply, efficiently, like all things near the bottom of the evolutionary scale. And for a moment, I thought I saw this gleam from the new thing on the floor, a gleam like the one I used to see sometimes in the blue eyes of Kurt's Siamese cat. And at last, we dumped both the things back into the tank and sat staring at each other, in the cheerful sun sunshine that peered inquisitively through the window. We held the greatest enemy of mankind captive. In captive, he was a thousand times greater enemy. A hundred thousand times. What the fuck, man? <laughs> like so This good. was just on the radio at three in the afternoon. This like, segment reminds me of, of, of both the original Lovecraft story, Herbert West reanimator, and the, the brilliance, um, you know, Terrifying, but also comedic uh, 1985 film adaptation. Yeah, which, which yeah, has yeah. A, which has a sequence where Herbert West, you know, the the, the mad scientist, um, basically kills his roommate's cat. And you know, oh yeah, oh my god, you're right. Yeah, we're animal lovers, but it's uh, it's all it's always horrible to see a, a cat or a dog like die in a movie or whatever. But it works so well here and it conveys the idea that this thing is able to feed and then like immediately reproduce, and it's terrifying. Um, I actually had a different, I had, I, I, please, I, I, please. Uh, this isn't a full reading. This is just a single line I wanted to draw attention with. And I, and I apologize. Uh, longtime listeners will know this is like kind of a, uh, you know, a hobby horse of mine. But one thing I love about Cooper um, in terms of just the exposition of a, of an outlandish story like this is that he doesn't waste time trying to like explain the science behind it because the science yeah. behind this is bullshit. You don't need to go into it because it doesn't hold up to scrutiny. But I like that within the within the the the, the dialogue between the uh, the main scientist and, and his wife, we have a point where he's explaining like how the how the microscope works and all this, and then his wife just inter interjects. Uh, That's enough of the lecturing. 
<laughs> yeah. And like that, that, that works on two levels, like within the story, it propels the narrative. And then it also kind of, you know, it's like a nudge and a wink to the audience. Like it doesn't fucking matter how the science works. It's, yeah. it's all, it's a fantasy. Like don't think about it on that level or you're, yeah. not going to, you're not going to enjoy it as much. And so I just wanted to draw attention to that because I think it's brilliant. And I think it, um, it just propels the, it gets the story, you know, it's just, it helps it, you know, uh, jump into gear a little bit. And yeah, then it just, it leads us to those moments that you just read where we get these like very vivid descriptions of like what this, what this, um, you know, enhanced life form is doing and, and how like, you know, like, okay, this is not going to be, this is not going to end well. This thing is going to quickly uh, escape the tank and just duplicate itself in, we know where this is going, but it's still uh, very enjoyable in a in sort of a perverse way to watch it unfold, you know. And of course, with all sort of pandemic related stories now that we're post COVID, well, we're in COVID, but you know what I mean? We're, we're, we're post we're post 2020. Um, you know, it always is funny. People talk about like going back and watching Soderbergh's um, Contagion. Great movie, by the way. Mm. Um, and it gets so much right about like just how this would un unfold we used to always teach it in our intro class here um, as a sort of example of charting like uh, global flows of culture and, and everything capital um, mm -hmm. in sort of post-modernity or whatever. Um, so the virus being a metaphor yeah. or in our case, the, the actual virus itself. Right. Um, but of course now post COVID everyone's joking that like the movie ends when a, uh, they get the vaccine and everyone's like, oh, thank God. Great. It's it's over now. Right. I mean, I haven't seen if it. only it worked that way in you real said life. This is right? uh, this is Steve Soderbergh, Steven Soderbergh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I think it's I'll... 2011. Um, it's good. It's really good. OK, um, I'm getting but a, yeah, I'm getting a, a nod of approval from a friend who's uh, who's elsewhere in the room. So great. Yeah, um, it's good. But yeah. But again, you know, people have been joking about like, uh, what does the end game vision look like? And it was, you know, we still lived in a world where we thought that, you know, people would just act rationally or something like this. And they don't. Um, and, and of course, pandemic stories are always now that we've been through one like this are, are always funny because the the envisioned imaginary is either it totally ends all life and it's a it's a, you know, apocalyptic disaster or we get the vaccine. And it turns out what really happened is somewhere right in the middle that's so much more frustrating but that said the very end of this episode is amazing um this sort of last vision that kind of of a dying world that kind of reminds me of the end of the first half of orson wells's war of the worlds when it cuts to the top of uh when the when the broadcaster is on the top of the broadcasting building and there's sort of the vision of him looking out is all of new york is on fire and he's like, this is the last broadcast and there's smoke in the air and, you know, we're all dying. And, and sort of the end of this, uh, Judd is, you know, saying it again. And he's like, you know, it doesn't react to fire. Uh, Dr. Patterson tried to go do something uh, and he flew in his plane, but his plane crashed somewhere and we don't know where he is and he had it. And oh my God, it's, and it's really interesting because I feel like we have other apocalyptic visions in other Quiet Place episodes obviously one being the man who stole a planet where like mm -hmm. the world ends but that's so much more of a kind of very silly fantasy of uh you know i don't i don't know some some R richard hand described that episode as like the most weird tales-esque i think yeah that's, that's a good way of uh of you know perceiving it or thinking about it but like the apocalyptic vision here feels much more sort of metaphorically grounded in like you know the the world did almost end like 
three years ago uh, when this aired um, in this kind of vision of the plane crashed and now it's spreading everywhere. And it's, it feels like almost kind of an unusual kind of concluding image for a, for a quiet police episode. And, yeah. and I like it. I like it a lot. It's, it's chilling. I just want to quickly piggyback going back a, a few seconds. I want to piggyback on your uh, cinematic comparison and, and remind people about a, what, what might also be a great sort of, uh, you know, uh, film companion piece of this episode, which is something you and I talked about like a year ago. There's a great um, 90s movie. It's from the mid 90s, I believe, the Todd Haynes movie, Safe. Oh, yeah. Another early, early yeah. leading role of uh, Julianne Moore. Um, one, of, one of my favorite character actors, Xander Berkeley, also has a, a leading part in this one. Um, I won't say much. I won't bore people with a description of it, but I'll just say that it has to do with a, with a, um, a disease that may or may not be real. Um, which, you know, obviously that was a big part of the narrative a couple of years ago, people, you know, yep. denying COVID and sort of that sort of thing. Um, not exactly like a, you know, apples for apples sort of comparison, but I think thematically uh, that, that movie would go very well with, uh, if, if you just want to be thoroughly depressed, you could listen to the 100,000 diameters and then watch Todd Haynes safe. Yeah. yeah. I think, a, I think a, an emerging uh, uh, retroactively organized sort of narrative structure that, post-COVID we should take seriously and think about, you know, Definitely. What, are, yeah. what is narratives of, of virality and contagion, you know? Mm -hmm. Anyway, final thoughts on, on these. I, I, again, I, it, it, this one's recreated as well. Listen to it. Um, you know, I, in, in nothing against Paul's recreation, obviously, but I just, I wish we had the. the yeah. The you know, if, if you poke around on the, on the, on the quietplease.org website, Paul's website, uh, you'll find a, uh, a quote from Willis Cooper, like in the in the first months or maybe a year or two after Quiet Please ended, uh, there was an interview with him where he talks about uh, the possibility of, of a book of all the Quiet Please scripts being issued. And he's like very dismissive of the idea. He says something along the lines of, you know, like these things weren't really meant to be read. They're meant to be performed and listened to by an audience. But, I, you know, I would I would I would disagree with the master. And I would say that, you know, you can read these scripts and, and just feel the, the power of them and feel how uh, just how well they were uh, written. And you can just, you can only imagine how well it, it would be to hear the actual recording, which, you know, um, one day Matt and I are going to swing, you know, on ropes into the Paley Media Center and just, and just rescue these things somehow, crash through a window, do some Mission Impossible stuff. We'll, we'll, we'll free them somehow, one day. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. Well, what's next? We've got a uh, next. We have um, not responsible after thirty years, which um, there is there is a you know we do have a recording of this. So um, next next time we'll be back to normal. We'll have an actual episode to cut to and discuss as per usual. So, but in the meantime, listen to Paul Neerum's recreation of um, did he did he recreate both these or just one hundred thousand diamonds? I think he did both. Okay, yeah, listen to both the recreations then. And, um, you know, as, as previously mentioned, we'll put the, the links in the show notes. All right, until then. Quiet, of course.